So I had to get out of my own way and I had to accept a lot of things about the chaos and the, you know, the non-predictability of life to sort of begin my process of um, letting go. Really, really to start with letting go to, to gain my power back within my life. Welcome to Stigma is Curable, a new mini-series offered by The Promethean Project and Break the Chains, Find Your Flame. Our goal is to have conversations about certain stigmas in mental health and physical health and wellness. Each month, we will invite a guest speaker, an expert, to come and present to the community about a specific stigma and have a community conversation to break down the stigmas and create connection. We are here for our third installation of Stigma is Curable. Tonight, we are doing Into the Unknown, a journey of addiction and recovery with our guest host, James Garns. Uh, James is a friend of mine who we met at Sun working together, and he's been on our podcast. Uh, he's got a great episode. If you want to check that out, you can check it out at the Break the Chains, Find Your Flame podcast on all your streaming events for podcasting. And so tonight we're going to have a intimate conversation with him about his journey um, and, and, you know, exactly what that entails and, and have an open dialogue about addiction and recovery. You know, what we're trying to do here with the Stigmas Curable events is that we're trying to make a community around these stigmas that exist in health and wellness fields and really bring the community together to process through and, and talk about them. And the goal is to cure those stigmas by bringing education and connection. And so I know that is one of James's missions in life. And so we're happy to have him on today to talk about that. Um, and we're gonna have him present and there will be a question and answer aspect to the presentation shortly after his presentation. So feel free on Facebook Live to write any messages to us, or if you're on the Zoom um, app with us, send us a message in the chat feature of any questions you may have. And you know, the unique take that we're, we're doing with this presentation today is not necessarily having an accredited expert come and talk about the stigma, but having someone who's faced it in, in real life and, and bringing that face of humanity to it so that we can share with friends and, and have this dialogue. So um, before we get to James, because I know he is super excited to talk, um, I do just want to share a, a quick thing about us, the Promethean Project, and how you can follow us and support us and be part of the conversation. So we're going to have these stigma is curable events one month in 2021. This is our third one. As I said before, we've done ADHD and we've done trauma in black and brown communities. And today we're doing addiction and recovery, but you can follow us on Facebook at the Promethean Project Inc. On Instagram at the Promethean Project. Our website is the Promethean Project.org. 
So without further ado, I am going to kick it back to James and he can introduce himself more and we'll go from there. Awesome. Thank you, Steve. Um, I'd like to just, I guess, start by welcoming everybody, whether you're joining us on Zoom or Facebook, and uh, thank you for joining us. And um, and thanks again to Steve for um, asking me to speak for the Break Your Chains podcast, and then again for the um, Stigma is Curable this this panel. It's been um, it's been a blessing to be able to do this, and I feel very grateful that to have maintained a connection with you and hopefully develop further connections with people listening and other people in the community. Um, so most of my story, you know, I talked about on the first podcast we had done, I'll kind of breeze over it. Cause I'd like to get to um, as quick as possible to the Q and a section. Um, Cause it, more or less, I, I, I like hearing engaging with other people when it comes to, you know, my, my story and, and, addiction and alcoholism in general and um the sort of the stigmas that i exist within um so i guess to start i'm born and raised in springfield uh that's where i am currently i'm have a house there um now i inherited from my mom a few years ago i am a recovering alcoholic uh i am an ex-felon or i'm a current felon but i am uh, formerly incarcerated, and um, I am a recent graduate of UMass Amherst. Um, I just finished my BA in communications through the university. And more or less, my story is the reason that me and Steve, we were talking about what to title this panel, and Into the Unknown, um, it's an allusion to a I'm also a musician and it's an allusion to the first solo recording that I ever had um, went in and recorded and uh, a, a small EP, a five song EP that I had done an acoustic album. And it, I titled it into the unknown because it was very, um, you know, it, it was very a personal project for me and, and talking about my path and, you know, the last 10 years of my life prior to recording it. And um so yeah, so I was born and raised in Springfield. I'm the son of two public school teachers. Um, both of them uh, are sober alcoholics, or my mom was before she passed, um, who reached sobriety through the help of recovery programs. And um, as far back as I can remember, I've struggled with addiction. It wasn't always alcohol. It started with food. When I was a young child, I was medically obese until I was in ninth grade. Um, at which point my addiction um, switched to dieting. And I actually developed um, a dual diagnosis of anorexia bulimia and struggled with that for three or four years. I ended up between ninth and 10th grade losing. I went into, like I had said, I was an obese child. So I went into ninth grade. I think I was 280. And by the walking into 10th grade, I was 142. So I'd lost pretty much half of my body mass um, in the course of a year. And then I became addicted to that feeling of validation of like people, you know, coming up to me, like, you look great. And, uh, um, and then from there, my addiction switched to alcohol. Once I had graduated high school, went off to UMass, um, the zoo, as they called it, and I'm sure they still reference it as that. 
um, I picked up the drink and it was off to the races immediately. It's, I kind of found my, I can remember taking like the first time I, I, I avoided drinking until I was 19 because of my parents. I knew that they were alcoholics. I knew it was a hereditary disease and, um, and I was worried. I was definitely concerned that I might fall on into the same, you know, traps that they had. And by the time I was 19, I figured I had it figured it out. You know, I figured, I thought that I'd, I'd seen most of my peers start drinking earlier than I had. And I thought I had a decent head on my shoulders and that I could handle it. And I wouldn't um, fall prey to those same things. And sure enough, within um, a year or two, I was drinking like a fish and um, three short years into my college experience during my the winter vacation of my senior year at UMass, I got behind the wheel after a show that my band was playing. And I um, decided to race a car at a, a stoplight, you know, and there was two people in my in my vehicle and they were both very close friends of mine. One of them, you know, broke their nose and had to have reconstructive surgery and the other one passed away and her name was Tony Bushy. Um, from there, I spent the next year, I dropped out of school. I spent the next year on pretrial probation. Um, my addiction exponentially increased to alcohol because I that thusly up into this point in my life had spent most of my um, energy in that vein, avoiding any real internal work and um, not just dealing with the insides, you know, my psychology, my trauma, my disease of addiction. I'd never, you know, I didn't have any tools in my tool belt, as they say in recovery rooms. And so the accident happened and the only coping mechanism I had was to drink even more, you know, to oblivion and not wanting to wake up. And a year later, I pled out um, after a long process of going to court, um, pled out to a three to five year prison sentence. Um, I hopped around the Massachusetts state correctional facility um, and I through, you know, gravitation towards wanting to, towards growth and wanting to never get out of jail and do the same things. Um, I very much found recovery rooms, 12 step programs, anything, anything I could get my hands on. I sought out and, um, to try to start doing the work that I never knew I had to do on myself. Um, after the three years and one month, I was released on parole. Um, I spent a year and a half on parole. I, immediately out the gate of being released from prison, I tried to handle my first couple of years as even though I'd been um, removed from substances and alcohol for a good amount of time. Now I wanted to handle my re-entry into society as if I was just getting sober. So I took all the um, suggestions from a lot of people around me who had gone through similar things or just struggled with addiction and um, who were more wise than me, who had more experience, who had more time, who had quality recovery. And I listened to those people and, you know, I, I didn't think that I knew it all like I used to. And I did my best to get out of my way and do it, uh, 90 meetings in 90 days, um, all those sorts of things that, you know, newcomers into any sort of recovery program sort of dive into. I got myself a sponsor. I worked through the steps of, um, a, that's, I'm, also, just a little side note, I want to say that I'm not here to advocate for AA. I'm not representing AA. I'm here just representing myself. But it did 
it was the path that I had found for recovery and it's what saved my life and allowed me to get sober and maintain sobriety. And beyond just putting down the drink, it, it opened up a world of, um, realistically spirituality that I needed because for me, what I ended up coming to terms with was that, um, my addictions and my alcoholism was merely a symptom of a lot of underlying issues within me, which was my disease of addiction, whether it be just the combination of anxiety, depression, trauma, all those things, anything that I had going on that was a little off, you know, my wiring was a little off. Instead of putting in the work that I didn't know I had to do, I would drink it away or diet it away or eat it away or date it away. Um, and so, um, yeah, so I was released. I, you know, dove headfirst into recovery. Um, I started doing speaking engagements around the local area into the local high schools about the dangers of drinking and driving and around prom season. Um, and I've been asked to do wonderful things like this. Like Steve has come to me, um, and just, you know, wanted me to share my story. Um, and it's been a long road and, um, and this is part of the reason why I wanted to get to the question and answers because I have a, a scatterbrain. So um, the way I actually initially intended to start my talk off was um, by reading the definition of the AMA's um, definition of addiction. And that's a very cliche college paper thing to do, but I think it's also important. And the AMA defines addiction as a treatable chronic medical disease involving complex interactions among brain circuits, genetics, the environment, and individual life experiences. People with addiction use substances or engage in behavior that becomes compulsive and can continue despite harmful consequences. And I think that sort of lays out my, I mean, it's the American Medical Association's definition of addiction, but I think it it's important to hear that because one, um, it's very as somebody who struggles with addiction, it's important to sort of communicate to others who might doubt the idea of addiction as a disease that, um, to not, you know, like there are prof medical professionals that have determined this and have put it into their text. Um, and just in that definition, there's a lot of really great points about addiction that I think need to be one remembered and sort of focused on, meaning that it's treatable, it's chronic. Um, it'll never go away. I'll always be an addict, but I can treat my disease. Um, and it's a bunch of different factors. It's, you know, like I was, like I had talked about earlier, I come from a family of alcoholics, you know, it's a hereditary, it's more prone to be hereditary. It's to be passed down. If your parents are alcoholics, there's a higher likelihood that you will become one. Um, it has to do with brain function. It has to do with trauma that you've experienced. It's nature versus nurture at that point. And both of those things go into creating or becoming or having always been an, an addict. And um, I don't think it's a single factor. I think it's all those things combined. And, and thusly, because of that, treatment tends to be multifaceted, meaning the way I've developed into the person I am today, the way I sort of try to attack my alcoholism is um, through balance, through a balance of um, mental, physical, and spiritual practices that keep me on an even keel and on an even level. And it's not things that I came up with in my own head. 
It was all things that were taught to me by people who have the experience and the knowledge and the education to guide me. Um, and that was a big thing getting over, getting over myself, you know, being able to be, become open to suggestions, you know, being able to step outside of myself and realize that, you know, I don't know it all and I don't know anything. And, um, a lot of people who with a lot more experience might, and to, you know, give them the benefit of the doubt and try things that maybe even at the time had been very uncomfortable for me, you know, like there's a lot of things in step work and within just therapy that can be very uncomfortable. And my old self would have gravitated towards running away from, you know, I, I ran away through substances and behaviors my whole life from really facing the things that, you know, were inside that were sort of unsettling and would deviate me from the path that I wanted to be on. Cause I always wanted to be a good person, even from a young age. Um, and I just couldn't conceptualize how to do that, how to get there because, you know, of all my inner workings, you know, my best laid plan ended up, I ended up in jail and having killed somebody that I truly love. Um, and in sort of the process of coming to terms with those things and dealing with them and seeking out help from people with more information than myself, I've been able to put together a very good life. Um, and I feel very thankful and grateful for that. Um, and again, it, this, none of this came from inside. I was, I was for 18, 19 years of my life. Like the, I say it in the podcast we recorded, I was the, the director, the lead actor, I was the script writer. I was the producer. I was in control of the show. And I thought that through pure perseverance and willpower alone, I'd end up a good person that was happy and satisfied. And I ended up doing one of the worst things I could have ever conceived and felt a shell inside. Um, so I had to get out of my own way and I had to accept a lot of things about the chaos and the, you know, the non-predictability of life to sort of begin my process of um, letting go really, really to start with letting go to, to gain my power back within my life. Um, and since since parole since being released i uh i dive i dove back into music i'm in two bands currently i was able to again through a bunch of connections you know like no nothing it was all community it was all community around me you know i was able to get sober and stay sober through aa and other 12-step programs and other recovery-based programs i was able to get back into school through the help of people currently in school through people who had gone back after being incarcerated, who gave me advice, who, you know, held my hand when I couldn't do it myself, you know, who held me up when I like felt like laying down and um, I wouldn't be here without the people in my life. And yeah, I'm just grateful. I'm, I'm very grateful. I'm grateful to be here. Um, and I guess I I'm ready to open it up to questions. Honestly, I feel like getting into too many details is just going to make me ramble. And I'd like to sort of talk about specifics about the stigmas, because there's a lot of stigmas in both what it means to be an alcoholic, what it means to be a recovering alcoholic, and what it means to be, you know, an ex-con. I've found um, it's an interesting path to walk. It's an interesting um, life to lead, especially like I had, I had shared a couple, like a week or two ago, a uh, an essay I'd written for a communications class about 
personal identity and within the constructs of society. And I fall into the most privileged section of our country. I'm a straight white male. Um, but a lot of times, you know, because I present that way, like my felony or my history or my past um, isn't realized. And there's a whole different slew of stigmas that come along with being perceived as an ex-felon, meaning like when I can't walk into a room and for an interview, like if somebody's looking at my resume on paper, like it's very unlikely that I get to that interview phase because of my record and stuff like that, because there's a huge gap of my ex in my experience in the mid twenties. And especially lately within, you know, larger conversations of the society, it's been again, like, like knowing where I come from, from those stigmas that are placed upon me by the outside has been very interesting looking at the, the differences that even my privilege has brought me in my story. Meaning um, I went away to jail for three years through, you know, bad, an awful decision um, that was fueled by my alcoholism and insecurities and more or less white male privilege. Like I got behind the wheel of the car that night thinking that I was in the movie, like thinking that we were going to be making a five minute clip in super bad of like a race, you know, like going out with your friends and racing cars and stuff. And, um, and that was all that was, it was me thinking that the world couldn't touch me because things were supposed to work out for me. And then I went away to, to prison and saw the way that the system had put a bunch of other people that never had a chance into these positions through stigmas, through, um, institutional racism through, um, toxic masculinity, you know, all those things like that contributed on societies and to disenfranchise and, and silence the voices of a lot of people, you know? Um, and even in getting out, I've talked before about my story, like, yeah, granted, like I have the stigma of addiction and, you know, being a ex convict on my hands, but I was able to like, step out of jail and I still have my white privilege. You know, like I still had like this, these members in society that historically like haven't been held back to help me, you know, like I've got another bunch of other, like, you know, connections and like jobs and stuff. And the way that this country has worked in incarcerating people for so long and, and very disparities in terms of like race and all those types of things, like, a lot of people don't have those opportunities. A lot of people don't have those blessings that I just got from, you know, being born a white man in America. Um, and so like in terms of getting out and like latching on to, you know, like taking advantage of all of my privileges and all the opportunities that were presented to me, um, I feel like I also owe it to help break that stigma for others who maybe, you know, didn't get the same chance. You know, like I, like, again, like I say, like when I tell my story to some people, they're, they're shocked sometimes that I was in jail, you know, like I'll be like, I'll meet somebody new. And then maybe a year down the line, like something will come up and I'll be like, do you know, like my story, do you know, like my past? And like, I was like locked up for three years and they'll be like, no, like I would have never imagined. And even that sentence is a stigma. Like 
the reason that you didn't conceptualize me being an ex-felon is because or a felon and an ex-con is because that person looks like a certain person in your head you know and it's sort of been my life's path and like my hope that i can in moving forward sort of break those stigmas not only for myself but for others so that you can see that like five years after and you know being incarcerated i'm gravitating towards altruism i want to help people and all those things and that a lot of guys behind the wall were just given a, a bad hand are dealing with their own addictions are dealing with system systemic racism are coming from abuse or broken homes and like it's it's all those things like piled into one that's really like i don't know it's when you go away to prison you realize that you know it's not a place it's not a, a cage filled with a bunch of bad people it's a place that society sends a lot of sick people that just need help this is maybe just need like a hand that maybe had never like heard about therapy in the first 20 years of their life or didn't have the money to go like whatever it is and um with education with actual you know systems in this country that can help both addicts and um ex-cons you know when if we were to really attack those issues without having this preconceived notion of like the bad guy the evil man who can never be fixed um then we can there's a lot of people in this country that can help to make this place a better place and um who if their voices were heard you know there's so much value our communities and our country as a whole and um yeah so that's a, that's why i'm here i guess is to i don't know don't listen to me i'm not an expert i'm just here to share my experience <laughs> Well, so I'm going to cut you off right there and because yeah. So I don't know if you want to open it up, Steve. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, you're you're a humble man, James, and a man of the world, as the map behind you kind of entails. Um, I did want to open it up to some questions. <laughs> we got some people on Facebook Live showing you a lot of love right now. Um, a lot of people saying hi. They love you. Um, you know, Ryan sharing in the feed that he's been sober for two years now alcohol free which is a great celebration to even just have someone yeah, share Ryan. in this feed so really connecting on that level i think is fantastic uh i'm gonna open up to questions so anyone on facebook live or the zoom call uh feel free to post a question or in the zoom call you can send it to the chat option and i'll read them out loud and have james's responses and we do have a um question right off the bat from megan her question was, what was the hardest part of getting sober for you? The hardest part of getting sober was def definitively, um, it wasn't so much refraining from substances. It was doing the preemptive work to maintain my recovery. Meaning like, like I said, like my, Early on, I thought that's that was what it was like, like when I first was starting to get sober, and I hadn't really like gravitated towards communities of recovery. It was, man, I just got a white knuckle this. I got to like, not drink for I just got to stop drinking. And um, 
that would always fail. Like even like in the first couple of like times prior to going away to jail where I would really like be sincere about quitting alcohol, it would be within a week or two, I'd, you know, rationalize a reason to go out and pick up again. Um, and getting sober, it, it really turned into being a very, uh, like I said before, an inside out job, meaning prior to my recovery, I thought that I was going to be able to find peace and happiness through making the outsides look good. Meaning like if I had a career, I'd be happy. If I was dressed in designer clothes, I'd be happy. And it's the opposite. I had to work from inside out. And then the other things on the outside will start reflecting the way my insides feel. Um, but, um, and again, it's specific to me. It's how I was, you know, able to get sober and maintain a recovery was working through the steps. And a big part of the step work and any sort of therapeutic programming is going through a, a deep and um, a deep dive into your moral history. So like in terms of a fourth and fifth step with my sponsor there to guide me, I basically went through my entire life, you know, not like, like the big ones, like I knew, I knew where I messed up. Like I knew the accident was an awful thing. Like I caused so much damage, so much heartache, death, um, so that was easy. Like, obviously, like, that's a bad thing. But I had to go through all of my relationships throughout my entire life and really think about, you know, my side of the street, like, being completely self accountable and dropping my propensity to rationalize the reason it was somebody else's fault. And even if it was only 10% my fault, I had to start becoming accountable for that 10%. And that's tough work. You know, it's like, I think it's also one of the things about all programs of recovery is that, um, for instance, AA says this, it's, it's in the literature. It's, it's about progress, not perfection. I think a lot of people, including me, I'm not going to talk too much about others, but in terms of my experience, I know that I wanted, my addictions had created an expectancy of instant gratification. You know, I could immediately on a Friday night, I want to have a, I want to party like it's a hip hop video. So I'm going to go out and I'm going to get some nouveau and you know what I mean? Like kind of thing. And like, and within two hours, I'm consuming liquid euphoria. Um, recovery is not that simple. It's not that easy. And it takes you, you experience back steps. You know, you like, like I had said, like my drinking was cis, uh, symptomatic of what my actual mental disorder and disease is, which is a combination of all these anxieties and depressions and traumas. So, you know, like I would have whole days, especially early on where I was just part of my French, I was just an asshole, you know? And when I fall into those mental traps of like, it's preemptively making sure that I can do the things, whether it be through meditation, through prayer, through talking to a sponsor, through talking to my peers, through reading recovery work, where that I learned that it's a lot bigger than just putting down the alcohol and that it wasn't going to happen overnight. You know, there's like months in early, you know, addiction where it sucks. You know what I mean? Like it's, you have the, I had the pink cloud happen to me, which they talk about in recovery rooms where, you know, you get sober, you start like your hangover goes away and you feel good. Like you feel healthy, but then like within a week or two, the stresses of the world that I never learned how to deal with start creeping back in. 
And now I have to learn how to deal with them. Now I have to learn how to deal with those stimulus from the world, from my social interactions without the crutch of a substance, without the ability to blame it on somebody else and go drink at them. And that's where the real, like the work of recovery, the work of sobriety comes in. And, the, and the, it's tough, but I can tell you, I can promise you anybody, Megan, um, and anybody else, um, it's all worth it. A hundred percent. It's, you know, the, the gifts, the blessings that have come into my life from doing actual real work on my soul and my mind, um, exponential than I ever imagined was possible. I didn't think I was going to smile again, you know, like after the accident, I didn't think after taking the life of Tony that I was ever going to laugh or smile or have a good time. I certainly didn't think I was going to be, you know, proud of myself one day. I didn't think I was going to like be confident or, you know, feel like I contributed any positivity to the world. And, you know, you work long enough and you stay sober long enough and miracles start happening. You know, you become a person that you never imagined. You can become a person you didn't imagine you could be before like all the bad stuff happened. And, um, and that's what I'm really grateful for, but yeah, that's the hardest part of getting sober. Um, and also I would say like learning boundaries, I would say that's, I've been finding that in the last couple of years that there's this, because I don't know everything. And then you get a little bit of sobriety under your belt and you start thinking, you know, stuff and that you can control things again. And it's sort of just evolving and growing with your life and the times and, you know, your level of recovery and sobriety. Like where, where am I today? It's a one day at a time thing. It's like, I just have to make it till I hit the bed at night without a drink touching my lips, you know, and today was a success. And all I have is today. All I have is to live in the moment. And um, yeah. And so like setting boundaries, learning, you know, learning what things I can do in my old that I used to do in my drinking days. Like, so for instance, like I was in a band back when I was a full-blown alcoholic and in the last couple of years, it's like, then like music isn't inherently unhealthy, but the way I interacted with music was like, I used my performances or whatever it was as a crutch to get to the after party. Like I wanted to be the drummer in a metal band because I wanted to be the drummer in the metal band in the club in the VIP section, you know, and that was my main motivation. I didn't, I wouldn't have been able to vocalize that to you at the time, but having now gotten rid of those desires for the most part, it's more like my love for music. Now, how do I interact in a healthy way with this part of my identity that used to be so consumed by my alcoholism? You know, like, how do I be? And guys even in prison used to ask me that all the time. And they'd be like, so you want to get out and you want to play music still? And I was like, yeah, of course. Like, music's my passion. I consider it my religion. Um, and they'd be like, but like, why? Like, do you think you can do that? You think you can like, you be a rock star? I was like, it's not about, like, I don't want to be a rock star. I used to want to be a rock star. Now I want to make music because it's gratifying. And I want to like share my a part of my soul with people. And I like being up on stage because that, you know, the anxiety of a pre-performance, like prior to hopping up there and like that feeling of release once you step off stage is unprecedented. Like I never even felt that high through any drugs I ever took. Um, but it's like, again, it's like figuring out those boundaries. It's walking into these venues that like, you know, like I used to walk into and, you know, and have like 
four shots before I'd go up on stage and like being around like maybe a whole other band's doing the same thing. Maybe like the band before us like plays trashed every night, you know, and I got, and that's fine. That's, that's their business. And I, I go up and I, you know, do my job, you know, I get my, I am able to express my love of music, connect with a crowd and step away afterwards and maybe go home a little earlier because it gets a little janky. You know what I mean? Like nothing, something they say in, in AA is just like nothing really good happens after midnight. <laughs> like it does, but like, you know, there's just chaos. That's, that's a chance. Like if you're out after midnight, like, and something good happened, it's probably because it was just chance because like there's a, good chance that something bad could happen too. And I've been in both cases and it's not, you know, I don't know. So yeah, I guess that, I guess that's probably been the hardest part again. Sober is like figuring out, separating my former identity from my current identity and seeing what actually gives my soul gratification and which, you know, rather than what I sort of grasped onto as my former identity, which really just became a conduit for party. I guess that's, that's that question. <laughs> and thank you. Thank you, Megan, awesome, for man. it. Very, very well put, James. Very, uh, we got a couple more questions coming in. So Marcus on the Zoom call, do you, do you want to ask the question yourself or do you want me to read it to James? You can, you can go ahead and read it, yeah. Okay. Hey, Marcus. Uh, so the question, the question from Marcus is, I really like how you connected your eating addiction to your alcohol addiction. Do you see your alcohol addiction connecting to linking to anything now? For example, food, again, caffeine, shopping, exercise, anything like that? All of it. All of it. I can get addicted to anything. I can, I can use absolutely anything or anyone to get outside of myself. And, um, and that's part of, I guess, like that quality like i said it's like you get a little sobriety under your belt you think you know stuff and then you know like you're going to the gym seven days a week and two hours at a time and now you've got this you know exercise addiction addiction um and so yeah like there's been a uh like for instance right now I, I still i've got a nicotine addiction i still smoke cigarettes that's my current battle um it's not as pervasively damaging to those around me, but it's definitely damaging to me. And I know it. And I, you know, my mom passed away a couple of years ago from COPD and she smoked cigarettes her whole life. Um, and it's been very realistically the hardest addiction that I've had to face. Um, but aside from that, it's like, I, I can remember, and it's calmed down in the last two years, especially honestly, because I, I kind of jumped to the next thing that I want to sort of tackle. And um, I was drinking six energy drinks a day at one point, like a couple of years ago. And over the last year, like I don't, I'm down to a couple cups of coffee a day, you know, um, it, my addiction is very pervasive and it, it can, like I said, it can be absolutely anything, you know, like, and that's why I have to sort of be diligent one day at a time to sort of check myself and not only in an, in an isolated sort of my own sphere, but that's part of why community is so important because my diseased brain can tell me that I can do these things. Like I can very easily be on my sixth energy drink of the day and go, it's not alcohol. 
you know, and if I'm not talking to anybody else, if I'm not hitting up my sponsor, if I'm not like, yeah, but that's true, but it's also not healthy. Um, if I start like isolating myself from all these, um, recovery sources that I've been lucky enough to, you know, come across in my life and remain connected to, then it starts to get dangerous. It really does. And beyond that, if I'm not taking care of the things that cause my addiction to symptomatically become um, behavioral, meaning if I'm not dealing with my depression, if I'm not dealing with my anxiety, if I'm not eating right, if I'm not doing my daily meditations, if I'm not reaching out to make sure that I'm making a social connection, you know, a day, like if I'm not doing all these things to keep my spirit in line, then they will start showing themselves the way that it always has in terms of my alcoholism and addictions. Um, so yeah, I've definitely found in the last couple of years that, you know, the big ones are out of the way, but in terms of dealing with what the heart of my addiction is, I have to remain diligent. There was a point in time two or three years ago where I moved up to Amherst and I, I had drifted from recovery programs. Like, like I didn't create a, uh, a network of recovery based people in Amherst. Um, and I, Hey, hello, Michael. Um, so I didn't create a recovery based, um, network up in Amherst and I stopped going to meetings. And then within a year I was depressed. I was low. My former sponsor, um, had told me a similar story too. And that was like, I was still part of that sort of terminal uniqueness where it was like, Oh, well that happened to him. It won't happen to me. Like this guy, this man who I chose to be my sponsor because I related to him so much and his expression of his alcoholism and addiction, who I literally went through a, a deep moral inventory with my whole life history, who we connected with on a ton of things, told me this verbatim story about him moving away not creating a network of people that he could lean on if things got rough. And then it got pretty dark within a couple of years and he was doing addictive tendencies again. And that might not be use, but it could be white lies. It could be, you know, staying out too late and not telling your girlfriend and you might not be drinking, but you're like you used to, but you're still doing all the other behaviors that are connected to that, you know, that addiction. And that happened to me. And I, again, like, because I have this thing that is common in alcoholism and addiction of being terminally unique, thinking that, you know, I'm the one and I know it. Um, I drifted and I eventually ended up coming back when I got, I got really depressed and really low when my mom passed, you know, I like, I had gone and that's a lot of the work in all these recovery programs. It's, you know, like originally you like you do it to get out of the fire. You know, you're like, you're the flames under your butt and you just want to not be in pain anymore, but then the pain goes away. And then you got to keep doing the things on a daily basis to prevent falling back into the fire. And I, you know, for the most part, I think that's, that's an answer to that question. Hey, Michael. Awesome. So <laughs> we did that. Yeah, Michael joined our, our chat uh, on Zoom. Uh, he was watching on Facebook Live. We sent him the link. So anyone on Facebook Live, if you want to join the Zoom link, it is on the chat feature. 
you can check as a reply to Michael's comment about the link. So if you want to hop on and ask questions live with James, you can do it that way. We do have a question from Crystal and her, it kind of goes along with, um, you know, what you were talking about, James, but a little bit more specific about coping skills and how do you manage or surpass the urges as they come up if they just hit you out of the blue and you've already done your meditations or your exercise or that connecting piece? Um, it's, and not to say like that I don't experiencing those things, but I've been, I'm grateful and blessed enough to honestly say that I haven't experienced the phenomenon of craving in a very, very long time. Like I'd spend, I can't tell you the last time I craved a drink. Um, and that's a very, like my story is not everybody's story, you know, but, um, when those types of things do and did happen, it's easy. It's the first thing I do is reach out. You know, I reach out to somebody in my circle, even if it's a, just a friend, whether it be a, somebody within a recovery program or not, if it's like somebody who knows my soul, like there are times where that would be my therapist. You know, I had a really, I was really close relationship with the therapist that I was seeing two and a half years ago that, you know, I call, they gave me their cell phone number. And anytime I ran into this situation where I was faced with the, the realization that I didn't know exactly the way to handle this situation, but I also had an idea that I could, that I needed to like seek out another source. Meaning like I would come to a situation that was very much unknown to me, or like I'd have like a craving or I'd have this emotional feeling. Maybe it was a resentment. Um, maybe it was, you know, fear. Maybe it was anxiety about going to something. And if I deferred to ignoring it, like if I'd be like, it'll be okay, ignore that feeling, that was the wrong move. And each time I started to feel some sort of disease, like the disease, anytime I would feel any disease and dis-ease inside, I made it a point to reach out to somebody to just talk it over. A lot of times that would be enough. You know, there was times like in the first couple of years of um, being released from jail where I'd be like outside of a liquor store because I would be with one of my friends and they'd be going somewhere and they'd be like, Oh, I just got to stop. I got to grab a six pack. And I'd be sitting there and I'd be like, you know, I don't want to go in. I don't want to drink. I don't want to, um, I don't want, you know what I mean? Like none of those things, but sitting in this car outside of a liquor store is making me feel anxious. So maybe I should call somebody you know, and, and deal with that emotion, like deal with the insides before it starts affecting my outsides in, in a way that I, for the most part, tried to flip around. And I guess that's, you know, the closest I can to answer that. Um, a lot of people have different coping mechanisms and part of the beauty of recovery-based programs is that, and that's why I like said so early on, you know, I'm no expert. I'm here to share my experience is that if you were like, say you're struggling with addictions, if you go check out a 12-step program, if you go check out a Buddhist-based recovery program, um, almost all of these recovery programs have a community-like function built into it. And the re part of the reason of that is because, you know, like, I want to go in and I want to be able to relate to somebody. So they say, like, go to, you know, a bunch of meetings if you're a newcomer. And, you know, listen, you know, just listen, don't talk, just listen. And eventually somebody's going to start telling your story. Like you're going to go to a meeting and like, 
it might take 10 meetings, but then you'll go and somebody's going to get up there and be like, yeah, I did this, 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 and this. And then all of a sudden you're like, wow, that per- I did all those things. And I couldn't imagine getting sober. And now this person's got 10 years. Maybe I should go talk to them about it. And um, yeah. That's it, I guess, for that one. <laughs> awesome. I like how you wrap up your, your conversational piece. By That's it. Saying, okay, now, now I'm done. <laughs> now question. I'm done. So I, we the reason being is because I honestly most times start rambling and forget where I started. I don't have any like finish line to get to. So I'm just like, yeah, that's enough. <laughs> but in those rambles are, are great gems of information. I know um, that connect to a lot of people. So thank you for the rambling, so. sir. Uh, <laughs> we, don't have, we don't have any other questions in the Facebook Live. I want to open it back up to the Zoom chat, uh, Michael or anyone else in the Zoom chat. Any specific questions that you want to throw James's way? All right. Well, I got a question for you that I, I All right, think, Steve. Um, knowing you a little bit and, you know, recently we had in my town, my hometown, there was a, a post I, I talked to you a little bit before we came on about uh, addiction and recovery. And it wasn't the most generative conversation, uh, to put it lightly. And so I'm wondering, oh, yeah. you know, being in recovery and being so open about your struggles and also owning you know, the privileges you have and how, how that has affected your recovery as well. What are, how do you deal with that when, when people are, maybe they know that you're in recovery, maybe they don't know. And, and they're talking about this in, in a very negative way and really belittling the fact that it's a disease and that, um, you know, saying things of a nature that addicts aren't, aren't, good people and that they're terrible people and it's, it's their choice and things of that nature. How do you, how do, how do you deal with that in a way that um, is generative for you, I guess is the question. Um, so the healthiest way or the way that I deal with that type of thing. And um, it's kind of just like a testament to the recovery programs I've been a part of is that um, a lot of, recovery-based programs, 12-step programs talk about, um, our job as like, like, for instance, like my, my job as a recovering alcoholic isn't to promote sobriety. It's, um, to provide an example. So it's, if I'm starting like going around and like telling people like, you need to be sober, you need to be sober. You don't understand how wonderful this life is. Like it's type, the type of thing that, that can push people away, but um, so very much so I feel like I, my job is to live a life of example and to take opportunities to sort of share that with others, um, in the event that you can somewhat relate or that you might be having your own individual structure, like struggles going on, and you can just see that it's possible. Um, and I think that's a lot of what it takes. I think it's a lot of, um, empowering the voices of, um, voices that have been silenced for so long to like open up sort of a more open dialogue than the ways that you're doing um, to sort of get rid of these stigmas. Um, I was in a very interesting situation. Uh, I was doing an internship at a, um, a nonprofit anti-corruption agency uh, a couple of years ago. And 
it was interesting because I had gotten like, I'd gotten a really good reference from a friend, um, went through the interview process and got the internship. And a couple of like weeks into the internship, another one of the employees there was like talking about having to fire somebody and uh or like somebody that formerly worked there and he said he was just like yeah he was like he was a real scumbag like he'd been in jail and uh he killed somebody in a drunk driving accident type thing and uh and the other person there like that was like it was like three of us having this conversation they kind of were just like um like looked at me and like do you do you want to like tell them your story and I was just like, yeah, sure. And then I was more or less was like, well, that, you know, I did the same thing. Like I like I killed somebody in a drunk driving accident, and um, and I went to jail for it. And it was like the shock, and like he for sort of felt like I could tell that he felt guilty. Like I could tell like he felt like he insulted me personally and all those things. And again, it was because I didn't fit the mold of what that person looked like in his eyes. So he didn't even consider that that I did the same thing. And that's basically my purpose, I feel. It's being that person to be like, hey, I did that too. Like, and you seem to like me. You seem to like give me a little bit of credit or respect for whatever reason. Like that's like that's the interaction, that's the energy I'm getting from you. And just so you know, I spent three years in state prison. Like I've taken the life of somebody through my like awful, terrible, like close-sighted decisions like myself decisions and you know if you can like me if you can like whatever it is if you can gain some wisdom from me from a person that you thought you would have written off before like if i fit into this box in your head about what you know or if i don't fit into the box in your head about what you know a an ex-con what a, a recovering alcoholics looks like then my job is is done you know if i can show you that like this could be your brother this could be your cousin this could be your sister your mother you know like we're all like we're all struggling with all different types of mental illnesses and um mine was intense and tragic um but it doesn't mean that on an individual basis we can't become healthy um that's another thing that's very much thrown around the rooms of of um around 12 step rooms a lot is that we're not bad people trying to be good people or sick people trying to get healthy. And, um, and a lot of times our sickness can end us in a lot of bad places and can cause us to do a lot of really messed up evil things. Um, but if we're able to recover, if we're able to become healthy, then we can give back. We don't have to keep being those people anymore. You know, like I know, I think back when people ask me if I ever miss drinking, I don't. I really don't because I truly, really viscerally remember who I was and I don't like that guy. And it wasn't the drinking, you know, like I was a very happy party, like don't stop the party drunk, but, um, but I throw up on your floor. You know what I mean? I do stuff like all the time. That was something that as a sober man today, like I don't want to do those things. And I feel better. Like, I just feel like, I feel confident and strong when I'm able to deal with life on life's terms. Like the amount of like they like in early recovery, they say a lot of time you have to give up your willpower. You do. You're like, cause like 
I thought I was running the show and I wasn't like when me, like I said, my best thinking put me in jail and killed somebody. So it was clearly not, I didn't have it figured out. Um, and once you give that, like you let go and you accept life on life's terms, you start and you can start seeing that aspect to your, you know, your existence, it becomes, you actually gain power back. Like you, you become a powerful person, like in terms of your acceptance. Like when I see people that are, are able to deal with these, like, even in terms of the pandemic era, like when you see people who are able to like deal with like these weird stresses of life and in healthy ways, learn to process it and not attach it to their mental health moving forward. Meaning like, um, you know, like I had a bad day today, you know, I'm not going to make that be a bad day tomorrow. Like when I see those people that have like really, whether through like recovery or who just naturally are driven towards acceptance of the way that life goes bad sometimes, like the amount of power that exists in that person that isn't exhibited through force and will, meaning like that person's not going to have a good day tomorrow because they're getting up and they're forcing themselves to have a good day. They're going to get up tomorrow and have a good day tomorrow because they accepted the fact that sometimes you have a bad day, you know, and the power that comes with that sort of acceptance that really, that sort of humility to know that you're just one of 7 billion people in the world and we're all just affecting each other, like through butterfly effects. And we're all just trying to be happy and at peace and survive together that we're all not that different. And that's what we want. We just want to feel good inside, you know, and like, and the ways that that's most beneficial to us tend to be the healthiest, like when it's actually done through healthy means, and then you can give that healthy inner peace to others, you know, like it's, I don't know. It's just, a, it's an incredible feeling. It really is. Again, I don't know. I don't remember where that question started. So that's why I just stopped talking right there. <laughs> no, you, you hit it a hundred percent on the nose. Um, I was waiting for you to say, okay, that's the end of the question. So I could jump. That's the answer, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Sir. Put it in the books. So we have one more question for crystal from crystal. Crystal asks, what has been one of the happiest moments of your life throughout your journey? Wow. Happiest moments of my life throughout my journey. Um, I, okay. So I can tell you about my spiritual awakening moment. Um, they talk about it in, in recovery groups and AA and all those. Um, and it can look different to different people. Like there's like a lot of people like, well, like, you know, get sober, do the work, you know, do the internal work and they'll get to a, a point where they like, they just look around themselves and they see like a, a beautiful life has sort of like built itself around them. And, uh, and it might not be like that, like sort of like how, like the last podcast was like talked about like those God moments where, you know, that like, Oh, this like spiritual thing, like this, I found it. Like, I felt like I'm given inner peace or like, it's not like a, like an epiphany moment. Um, and it's not that for everybody, but I did have a, a situation that was very close to that. And I talk about it. It's the, my spiritual awakening moment. And, um, it was well into my step work. Um, I was doing, I was somewhere around my eighth and ninth step, which is an amends list. And then, um, doing those amends. And, um, again, through just 
seeking out people that had better answers who were more wise for me, um, saying yes to opportunities that were presented to me that were definitely healthy and were ways to share my story and connect with others in the hopes to do so in a, on a healthy path, like walking my, my path towards whatever my self-discovery and inner peace was going to end up looking like. Um, so it, within that process, I was at the end of my incarceration, I was down at Howard street, which was the Western Massachusetts correctional alcohol center. And while I was there, I was asked to, to do speaking engagements in the local high schools for the um, Springfield district attorneys. And I had done a few already. And we had, were this particular one I had done um, was in, I can't remember now. It was like, it was like a, one of the folk, it was like uh, Pathfinder, I think it was like a combo school of like a couple towns. Um, anyway, we were doing the, the, um, we were doing the speaking engagement in the, in the library of the school and we finished up and it was like me and other people that had similar, um, stories, you know, like there was a, a couple other people that had vehicular homicides like myself. And then there was a couple of people who were survivors. There was like a, the wife of a man who was killed in a drunk driving accident that volunteered that wanted to like, you know, like honor her husband's memory and like come and talk to young kids about not getting behind the wheel and taking a life potentially. Um, and so we did the speaking engagement and at all of them, like at all the schools, there would be like the, like the good, like the good kids would like hold back and like thank the speakers. And that was pretty standard. You know what I mean? Like, but at this particular one, I know like that happened. And then a bunch of the, like those kids came up and thanked us and then left. And then I noticed some, an, another kid kind of hanging back and then they came up and they came like directly to me. And um, I, this feels like a little bit of an overshare, uh, but they said, um, so they came up right to me and they were just like, Hey, I would like to give you a hug. And they hugged me and then like they pulled back and then they were like, just so you know, um, two of my uncles were killed in drunk driving accidents. And I just want to tell you to keep doing what you're doing. And they just walked away <laughs> and I turned around and I went back into the stacks of books and I started bawling my eyes out because never in my life again, now prior to this, Three years before walking into like Walpole prison, like built in 1905 with the sliding looks like Alcatraz. I walked into jail thinking that everything that was happening in my life was on my own merits, was merit based. Like I'm a bad person. Like I'm in jail now. Like I thought I was a good person. I could make good things happen. And through a bunch of circumstances i now found myself in this position and i realized for the first time in my life that even though i was in car currently incarcerated that i was literally about to get back into the back of a paddy wagon and return to jail after the speaking engagement i was in the right place at the right time doing the right thing and none of it was my design like if i had my way if my life would have gone my way i would have been out i would have been you know like been out free partying like with my friends but because of a bunch of different things that was nothing under my control i was able to be here in this moment for this person um and it's just the one person like if you can after having done the awful terrible things that i've done like if i can reach a single heart if i can prevent one person from getting behind the wheel and doing the awful things that i did if i can just prevent somebody from having a miserable 20 years of their life because they're waking up with a hangover every other day.
Um, that's what I want to do. And I realized in that moment that again, it was none of my design, you know, like I didn't, if I told you like, do I want to go to jail? No. You know what I mean? Like, do I want to go? Like these things are nerve wracking to me. I started this whole talk off being like, I'm, I feel like it's imposter syndrome. I don't feel like I'm an expert at anything. And I don't think anyone should listen to me. Like, you know, type of thing. I'm just here to provide my experience. But again, through just taking the healthiest options when they presented to me and agreeing to them and going along with whatever the plan is, you know, like whatever the is outside of my conception of what the right thing is or what like I need to be doing to like have like a valid sort of feeling about being a good person for myself. Like that doesn't matter. Like it's just, it's being in the right place at the right time. And usually I'm not the person to decide that. So I just got to keep doing the very next right thing and taking it a day at a time. And then, so yeah, that's, that was, I would say aside, like that was hands down, like the best, like moment of my journey since. Um, and I've had others, you know, like similar. Um, but also like I just as a second one was um, I was able to go in about because I just thought of this. I was able to go in about a year and a half ago and um, record. I'm a, I'm a musician. I was able to record a song and dedicate it to Tony and just sort of talk about my experience through uh, with her and um, and the feelings that were much more prevalent immediately after the accident, but still exists to this day in terms of guilt, survivor, survivor's guilt and like being the person to like cause her death and like, and cause everybody else's pain who knew her. Um, and I was able to go in and um, with a very good friend of mine. And I had this really weird, this is one of those, another little, like weird God moments where um, when I went away to jail, like I had told you, my mom was sober through AA. When I went away to jail, the, the night that I went away, my mom went to an AA meeting. Um, I'm going to call this person Z that I'm about to talk about for anonymity's purposes. Um, my mom went to a meeting and she couldn't sit through it because I just went away to state prison. So she sat through 15 minutes of the meeting. And she left. She goes outside. Um, Z comes out. This man, Z comes out and sits next to her and just talks to her for 45 minutes and she talks she tells um the story about me going away to jail and you know how she's heartbroken and this guy in the program was just like hey like um come back next week i'll be here i'll be here to say hi to you um and then he gave my mom all his information and he was just like hey just so you know i'm a music producer and um and when your son gets out of jail you know, like have him hit me up. You know, I, I got a bunch of sober music friends and uh, and we'll do some music together. Fast forward four or five years later, I'm out of jail for a year and a half. Um, through circumstances, through like, I don't know this has happened, by the way, this story that, I'm about to, that I just told you. Um, I meet a couple people, like I end up recording a, a little acoustic song on Facebook a friend of mine in the program sees it or like a guy in the program that I was on friends with on Facebook sees the video is like, Hey, you should come in and record like a real version of that. I go in, we record the song. And after the songs I'm recording, I start being like, Hey, like, so like, you know, I know you're in like the program. I know you live a life of recovery. Uh, do you know my mom? And he goes, Oh, no, I don't think so. And then I tell him like her name's Bev. And he's like, wait, 
you're her son. And then he starts recounting the story that I just said about the day that I went away that I had never heard before then. And then I go home and tell my mom, like, I just recorded a song with Z. And she goes, oh, I love Z. She's like, I love him so much. He's like, he was there to console me and to be my support system like the day you went away. And then I went back every week just to see him. And he would always come up and give me a hug and tell me it was going to be all right. And those are the moments that those moments, like I didn't plan it again. Like I just, some guy hit me up on Facebook was like, Hey, you want to record that song? And then all of a sudden it's just like, Oh, this is the man that when I was away and I couldn't look after my mom or like be there as an emotional support for her, he was there. And now life has put us back and into each other's paths and we're both here making music to honor the friend that I had, you know, killed. And we're here doing it together as two sober men. And it was like, those, that's the magic. Like that's the magic of sobriety. It was like when things like that happen and you see, and you're just like, man, like, I don't know, but yeah, that, that I forgot about that until halfway through telling the first story, but that's, that's a special one because then I was able to, and my mom ended up passing away about six months later, but I was able to like, once that song was finished, you know, bring it home to her. And you know what I mean? Like after putting my mom through hell, you know, having to, she had to watch her son get handcuffs and taken away for three years, you know, like to be able to record, you know, a, a part of my soul in art with like a wonderful man who she knew who had helped her and like to like look in her eyes and see how proud of not only me like in terms of making music but in the place that I'd found myself in life you know and that I had done it with Z and who she also loved and I don't know there's just I don't know if there'll be a, a more powerful music musical moment in my life than that but um and it was directly connected to my recovery you know, there's no, there's no, that moment does not happen if I'm not a sober man. Like I'm not even in that guy's house if I'm drinking, you know, like, and it's just like, I still get goosebumps thinking about that story sometimes, but I just did. <laughs> that's amazing. I love everything about those stories. I think that's a really apropos way to kind of close out the event and, you know, honor uh, your journey, but then I'll honor your openness for coming in and talking to us today and, and, you know, giving us that perspective of, you know, what it's like, but then also being that model for other people. So I just want to take a second and I'm sure everyone watching or on the zoom call would also want to just thank you very much for coming in and, yes, and thank doing you. that service for us. That was great, man. Thank you. I appreciate all of you and thank you all for listening. And Steve, again, like, I'm nothing without other people. I'm nothing without you. And um, yeah, me sitting alone here in my room in my like room, my house, like I'm, I'm useless and it's people like you. It's like, it's other like souls that give me an opportunity to like, I don't know, reach others, reach out and feel connected and, and bring me that inner peace through being able to share our, our shared uh, stigmas and traumas and life stories. So I, you know, I'm the lucky one today. I really do feel like that. Thank you, sir. So um, we're going to work at James and I are working on some, some stuff behind the, behind the scenes that we're not ready to announce yet, but uh, stay tuned. He's got, he's got some more gems of knowledge to drop on everyone and we'll be in touch.
again, thank you all for participating and watching. And uh, next month, we'll have a new event for you to join. So stay tuned. And if you have any questions, feel free to outreach to us or to James. And um, we'll respond. You can follow us on social media, listen to our podcast, check out James's podcast called Little God Moments and to get a more in-depth story of uh, his background.